Welcome to Pontoon Runners Off-Road, your home for all the latest club news and views. I'm Paul. I'm Laura. Okay, so welcome back everyone. Hi, hi Laura. Hi. How are we doing? Good. Okay, so this is a special episode because you remember a couple of weeks back we interviewed Ray. Yes, how could I forget? Yeah, and it was quite a long interview, wasn't it? It was long, but it was awesome. Yeah, so what we've done is we decided to split it into three, didn't we? Yeah. So we had three episodes, and you guys have hopefully listened to uh, the first one already. So what we're going to do now is introduce you to the second of the three episodes. And in this episode, uh, Ray talks about his experiences with nutrition, comparing that to the modern day use of nutrients and supplements and and dare we say drugs in sport and and, yeah so it's uh hopefully you guys are going to find it uh interesting and um hopefully leave you wanting more uh, which will be the third episode which is coming up soon and we'll uh, we'll publish that um probably a few days after this one to give you a chance to uh, to have a good listen to this one so we hope you enjoy it and we shall sign off uh, afterwards and we shall see you uh, very soon okay cheers just going back to the nutrition and the preparation do you but you do you, you took that as seriously then as people seem to take it now, you know, because there's a big industry out there now, isn't it, about yeah, nutrition? Well, probably in my own sort of way, you know, yeah. I didn't have anybody to guide me. No team around you. Was no, the, I, I personally had no team, no. And um, the British athletes, people didn't really have a team as such, you know, yeah. to sort of, certainly not to sort of force you. It was all very amateurish and... Um, mm. You know, I went on the odd training camp, but it right. was like a weekend training camp, and then you came back home and you were back to where you were, you know, sort of doing <laughs> it on your own again. <laughs> I think nowadays they're probably being monitored by British officials, yeah. you know, and probably being almost forced, you know, certainly not as bad as probably some uh, some countries, certainly in you know, the Eastern Bloc countries. Yeah, it's probably more organised now, isn't it? But you get it is a, a lot bit more professional, organized. don't you? Yeah. Um, but so, a lot more professional now, yeah. from, and I think there's some good things and some bad things about that. You probably can get better preparation and better training and better treatment for injuries as well now, mm. but you also get a lot more things that you have to give back in return. You know, you can't really yeah. live your own independent yeah. life, you know, for the top athletes now. They, they have to do a lot more. You know, sort of supporting the sport and yeah, the media yeah. commitments and that sort of thing. Yeah, a lot of media stuff. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine many of them kind of running to Procter and Gamble in the morning and putting their stuff in the washing machine. Well, then. one of the good things about yeah, I don't know, yeah, I don't know. I I I'd love to know if you could still make it as like I did, you know, as yeah. a, a university student. And I I often think you could. Do you think? But then when it really comes to the crunch, I, th- I think you would struggle. I think the main way you would struggle is if you look at some of Britain's top athletes now, you see in the summer in particular, well, at any time of the year, but in the summer in particular, you see them racing here, there and everywhere. And I think you'd, you know, if you had a full-time professional job, you would struggle to get the time off. Yeah. Mm. And if you, you know, so you'd just be turning up for weekend races and the, and the odd week you've got for your holidays from work, you could yeah. go out on a official designated trip but really I think you probably do need to be more professional now yeah. simply because the sport's a lot more professional mm. Yeah. I think you could get in the team though I think if you're a bit of an unknown 
See, I'm, I'm um, still tempted to yeah. try it. <laughs> yeah, go for it, yeah, go for it, girl. I don't think I'm anywhere near fast enough. <laughs> I think the beauties of Britain, though, you know, you, they, you can... It's, it's, Argo's even better in America because they, you know, you, if you can get into the trials there, they still pick the first three, so you yeah. can just come from nowhere, you know. Yeah. And just on the day, the beauty of athletics and swimming as well is, is the stopwatch counts a lot, you know. Yeah. yeah. To yeah. some extent, you know, to get into the national championships or whatever, you just have to produce the times, qualifying times. Once you're there, mm. just get in the first three. Yeah. So I think if you were an up-and-coming athlete you, in Britain, you could just train in your own environment. And certainly, if you look at a lot of British athletes now, they are um, living all over the well, they're living all over the world now yeah. actually, but they're living yeah. all over Britain yeah. and training with their club mates. You know. yeah. So I think you still could. But I think if you wanted to stay as a top international athlete, you would need to commit yourself, you know, or certainly not have a job working for a, a traditional company yeah. where you're not the boss. You know? I think this is where kind of lottery funding kicks in, isn't it? And yeah. the, yes. the funding that's available as yes. well as the sponsorship, which maybe some of the top athletes yeah. would get so that would help yeah. fund their kind of they wouldn't need that's, a job would they yeah that's the you big know, difference it's that kind of crossover isn't it, between being a really good athlete and getting picked yeah. up and noticed because um, it's the same in other sports like I follow tennis quite closely and even some of the good tennis players in Great Britain you know they still struggle yes. unless they win big you know right. and get yeah. and get good sponsorship so yeah. um, I suppose there's a bit more of that now than back in your day I don't know yeah you're um, right you know and they get appearance fees, and if you get onto the Grand Prix and things, you get yeah. appearance fees. So it's a bit more kind of commercial, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe that's where they get some of their income from. Mm-hmm. In my early days, athletics was an amateur sport, and in many ways it was incredibly amateur. You know, if yeah. you got the £10 prize somewhere along the line, you would be banned for life. You would be if it was found out, you know. Really? You know, I won a few teapots and kettles <laughs> and electric toasters. But if you so won... say these cups are quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But if you won money, it was serious. And then it started wow. to get a bit grey areas. Yeah. And I know some of the top athletes, you know, the whole story about brown envelopes at meetings, you know. Right. And there was money going under the counter, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I ran a, a big meeting in Edinburgh, an annual meeting in Edinburgh that coincided with the Edinburgh Highland Games and it coincided with the Edinburgh Festival and all the rest. And they're athletes from all over the world competing. And there was money going under the counter there and I ran and didn't get anything. But it was a nice weekend, you know, yeah. you got your hotel. Yeah. And uh, there was a lot of money in the meeting and to, to support the meeting. But I got a knock on the door one one day from the police and they wanted to talk to me about expenses for the Edinburgh meeting. No way. And I was lucky, my expenses were probably generous, but they were legitimate, you know. Mm. And they'd gone round almost everybody because there was, you know, some people getting excessive expenses, mm. you know, like, you know, petrol to Edinburgh from, I don't know, from Newcastle, £200, you know, or things like that, you know. Yeah. Um, And actually, the the meeting director, who was a really good guy, he he lost his job. Oh, Oh, no way. It's about fraud, isn't it? So, (laughs) I'm not too... Well, certainly, and that was when it was still an amateur sport. Mm. And then it changed quickly. uh, So I got, you know, it was only towards the end when I... um, it was changing very rapidly, you know, so I, it suited me because I, I had a, as a student and then I had a proper job, so being an amateur sport suited yeah. me. Mm-hmm. I wasn't competing against professionals, mm-hmm. but um, then it changed to become professional, so you could get money and you mm-hmm. could get sponsorship, and of course that changed it. In fact, there's a lot of British athletes today, 
you know, mid twenties have never worked in their life. Yeah. And I think one until we're gonna get the shocks when they, you know, retire or have to, yeah. you know. Yeah. But um yeah, it's different now. One of the good things that could you could get with well, you need money for it, is things like altitude training. That's yes. the sort of thing where actually you need you need time and money, you know, you need to spend three or four weeks yeah. probably a couple of times a year abroad yeah. and a, a month's mm. worth of hotel accommodation is quite expensive. And did you yeah. do that as well? I never, I had the chance to go to Altitude with mm. the British team. Um, mm. I could have gone before the Munich Olympics. Um, there was a, the distance runners were invited out to San Moritz for Altitude training, but I'd never been before and there's, it was, it was in its infancy in those days and some people were back unsure about, you know, how it affected your body and whether you should um, when you should compete, when you came back to sea level, because some people, their bodies adjust in such ways that they perform worse. I oh. Right, okay. So I decided, and I got a great setup at university, so I decided just to stick with what was working for me, so I didn't go. Yeah. Um, I know Brendan went. Right. I went to Munich with the British team on, on, on the plane. Most people went on that, and I got into a room in the Munich Olympic Village with... John Kirkbride, I think, and we got a bed for Brendan. Yeah. And there might have been three or four of us, I don't know, I can't remember now. But then a couple of days later, the, the, the distance guys came in from San Moritz. Yeah. And Brendan came in, saw this room with three or four other athletes in it, and said, I'm not having this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and went off and did his own thing. And in fairness to him, you know, he yeah. was a very dedicated guy, and yeah. you know, he knew what he wanted. And yeah. um, so he was my teammate, but he wasn't my roommate. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and did the altitude training actually make a difference? Well, I think altitude training does, but I think what it does, it increases your red blood corpuscles, yeah. gives right. you more oxygen-carrying capacity, but I think it also probably, I'm no scientist at all, but I think it's like blood doping, which is illegal, it sort of thickens your blood right. as well, there's a lot more in there, yeah. and that's not so good, yeah. and so some people struggle, I don't know what the worst effects are, I don't know any really terrible effects, but some people go slower, and there's right. things a debate, because obviously when you come back to sea level, your body readapts again. And the question is, how fast does it readapt? So, you know, are you at your best, you know, two days after coming back, or is it four, or is it six, or is it ten, you know? Yeah. Mm. I mean, nobody, I think if you came back and then raced a month later, you'd have lost the benefits. Yeah. yeah. But then if you had to fly back from altitude and um, compete the following day, that's yeah. you know some yeah. people do You're well tired. some people yeah, yeah some people don't do well i was running one amusing story about going to altitude it was all trendy at the time and i say the olympic team had gone to samaritz so i used to train with ian stewart who was one of the world's best athletes at the time from birmingham and he decided he'd go pre-season training at samaritz and he, he hadn't done much research so <laughs> and it wasn't far from birmingham to drive so him and a couple of other guys drove to samaritz I think it was March time. They got there and the track was under three foot of snow. No. <laughs> and it hadn't occurred to them that, you know, March at Samaritz actually <laughs> wasn't that great. So um, they messed up the altitude training. I think they were sloshing around in the snow and didn't get any decent training in at all. But that's just a, an odd anecdote about altitude training. Yeah. What's the, on a slightly thornier subject, um, much evidence of doping or worse at uh, Munich, you know, in terms of... As far as I was concerned, there was really none. I was... I still believe that none of the distance runners at all were yeah. doing anything in, um, in the British team. Yeah. 
There was one or two rumours about one or two athletes with the early stages at blood doping. Yeah. Uh, Lassie Viren got himself into you know, and then headlines. Lassie Viren won the Olympic 5,000 metres and there were stories about him doing this thing called blood doping. You mm -hmm. take some blood out of your own body yeah. and store it and uh, probably early season then inject it back into, you know, have a blood transfusion wow. later on. Yeah. Which if you think about it, you know, if you uh, um, an extra pint of blood in your body, in, in simplest analysis, Gives you yeah. Yeah. an extra pint's worth of oxygen carrying capacity. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of side effects to that. But he was accused of that. And I think, I think um, it was well accepted in the end that blood doping did exist. Mm -hmm. I don't think it started in athletics. I think it probably started actually in, in cycling. Yeah. Um, and then it got more sophisticated. Because the principle is that, in fact, what people do today is, is altitude training. Mm. The, the thing with blood altitude training, of course, is natural because you're just yes. you're not putting anything into your body. You're just going on your yeah. on your own and running, yes. and it's really quite painful, I believe, training at altitude because less oxygen there, so yeah. all sessions are slower mm. and more painful. Mm. Well, as painful as you can put up with. Um, mm. But the blood doping is um, is illegal, and it is obviously you need a doctor to to yeah, do it with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, another amusing story because another fin the Finns got this bad reputation because I suppose they're the ones who are winning things. And Pekka Basada won the Olympic fifteen hundred meters in Munich, and um, he's a Finn. He never got found guilty of blood doping, but um, there was always suspicions, part mm. probably because he was a Finn. You know, you can't yeah. Yeah. association. Yeah. But one of the other um, the top um, ten thousand meter runners did some blood doping. One of them did, and. Uh, got banned for steroid use and yeah. it turned out he'd been taking steroids um, before he took the blood out of his body, stored it in fridges, ah. he did it all professionally, stored it in um, for three months because he wasn't going to use it till like August for the yeah. big games, yeah. stopped taking steroids for obvious reasons, he didn't want to get caught at the games <laughs> and just before the games, put the blood back so into his sneaky. body, forgetting that at the time he'd taken it out, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> steroids in it, and he got done yeah. for taking steroids, and he said, I haven't taken steroids, you know, you, you know yeah. blah, 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 and he hadn't, he hadn't for three months. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that's quite an idiot story about not being too clever. Um, that's karma. But I think, basically, <laughs> I don't think there was a big drug problem. There might have been with shot putters, and yet again, I couldn't name anybody. I no. Yeah. And there might have been with some of the sprinters, because, you know, steroids were really for power events. Yeah, I mean, I think I was saying to you in the car, yeah. wasn't I, that, that I certainly remember in the 70s, you know, stories about steroid joists in, in athletics, and the, it was the power stuff, the yeah. shot put, the discus, mm -hmm. uh, hammer, those sorts of events, and weightlifting and that sort of thing. It was a big thing in the day, wasn't it? It was, it was a big thing yeah. back then. I genuinely thought no British athletes were involved, but I, I mean, I, I'm good friends and sprinters yeah. and throwers, you know, yeah. could you get, you know, when you're in Munich for two or three <coughs> weeks, you know, you get to know everybody, really, you mm -hmm. know. And I thought they were all genuine. I think it probably were, but you know, yeah. certainly it's around the world, there are a, were right. a lot of people yeah. taking steroids, I mean, and there've been a lot since. Well, and today it's still cursed. And today it's still, it's still going. Sport, it's it? still it is. It is. I mean, it's one of the most depressing things about the sport. It's depressing that people are doing it, yeah. and it's depressing from not just because they're beating 
clean athletes, but because yeah. it's just ruining the sport, really. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's cheating everybody. It's cheating it's the people it is, that yeah. follow it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's cheating the spectators, yeah. and it's. I think it's one of the reasons why you know athletics probably isn't quite as popular as it was, re- relatively speaking, yeah. in, back in the seventies. Yeah. Because people think there's a lot of cheating going on, mm. and people are repeating their cheating as well. You know, I mean, yeah. Justin Gatlin is a famous yeah. case. You know, yeah. genuinely found for steroid abuse, <laughs> gets services two or four year ban every month, and then back. comes back and does yeah. it again. Yeah. You know. I, mean, yeah. I don't know how it doesn't put them off. Well, I think it's just that um, you know they just want to win. You know, and they, yeah. Yeah. nothing else but, matters. But it's it's going back to when you you can get banned for life for fiddling your expenses, but yeah. you can come back and do and do sport again, having found guilty for doing. You know, yeah, there's some crazy anomalies, really. It's just. The administration and the administrators need to get it sorted, don't they? Yeah. The drug testing is a little bit haphazard as well, though, isn't it? You know, in some countries they do it more than yeah. others. I think Britain's very tight. Mm. I think it is. Mm. For better or for well, certainly for the better. Mm. But it's, it, it, it is yeah. depressing yeah. when British athletes are competing against others. Yeah. But it's we know really it, we, we do know that there are British athletes who have been guilty. Mm. I mean, that's, I don't know the most famous one is, I suppose, Dwayne Chambers, probably mm. yeah. the sprinter. Yeah. Mm. Um, but there have been a number of people mm. you know, been found, which is a bit sad, really. Mm. Some people even doubt the Kenyans now on. Yeah, you know, we were just having which this is quite depressing. <laughs> for, for decades, I thought they were just winning everything because they were naturally talented. Yeah. They were naturally. You know, living and training at altitude, so they got this like um, better blood, and, um, and I know they do train hard. Yeah. But then apparently, on top of that, they're also taking some drugs. I know. So I mean, it is totally depressing. Well, we said didn't we in the last yeah. Olympics? I think one of the Kenyan coaches got got expelled. I think didn't he from the games yeah. or something? Well, and, it, um, it shattered my illusions because I was just living in a nice happy, blissful bubble where the Kenyans ran really well because they were really good and then Paul shattered my illusions this morning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well depressed. I think the trouble is, and it applies to a lot of sports, you know, if you're, if you're a Kenyan marathon runner and on your natural ability you can run two hours six or something, yeah. two hours seven, which is world class, you walk in the British team by ten minutes, but yeah. <laughs> you're probably only the tenth fastest Kenyan. Yeah. yeah. And, and what are you going to do about it? You know, you're either going to just accept the fact you're not going to go anywhere big, yeah. or you're going to take some sort of drugs, really, yeah. you know, to get into your national team. Mm. Um, so I, I guess that's why they do it. Of course, it's such a poor country that for some of them it's a way out, well, isn't it? It's a way yeah. out of poverty. But well, yeah. But for cycling, you know, you've got um, Armstrong, you know, Lance mm. Armstrong, who, you know, he was basically not. He was. He was. He didn't get caught for a long time. Yeah. You know, and so maybe it's the same. For, I don't know. I don't know. Really, it's cast dispersions, but mm-hmm. maybe these Kenyans are just not getting found out, or maybe maybe well, they're all clean. Yeah. Maybe they're all clean. You know? Yeah, I think there's some truth in that. You're know, cycling. I think everybody in the Tour de France, you know, twenty yes. odd years ago, were yeah. taking drugs. But yeah. I used to watch it a lot, and then see how tough an event it is. You can probably see why they had to do it. Yeah. yeah. Although they don't have many deaths, but they had a British death, of course, of Tommy Simpson back in the late 60s, and right. he was on, not steroids, I think, he was on amphetamines or something, Right. and it forced him beyond his limits and got halfway up one of the mountains in the Tour de France, 
and he'd overdone himself and he just right. keeled over, fell off his bike and died on, on the spot, you know. Yeah. And that was drug taking, yeah. but it wasn't sophisticated drugs, this mm. is back in the 60s, because mm. the cyclists have all been taking EPO, which yeah. is crept into athletics, which is yeah. good for endurance people. Yeah. And they cleaned it, I think they cleaned it up fairly seriously in cycling, but I'm mm. be careful I'm saying, but I, I, I don't know, it's crept back in again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you see them going up out Duez four hours yeah. <laughs> in the heat in the yeah. summer, you think how and then they get up the next day and do another four hour stretch yeah. in the it's mountains and you think oh, these are superhuman. Yeah. And, yeah. But again what's interesting though is the tying back into the sponsors and the contracts because yeah. I think with mm-hmm. uh, Armstrong, you know, his former sponsors are now suing him for the yeah. for the sums that he was paid as part of the team that he was riding for. So it's an interesting way of looking at how you try to enforce and clean up the sport and maybe the sponsors who are awarding these top athletes mm-hmm. huge sums to market their products can actually part of, be part of the solution as well yeah. Yeah. you know maybe Potentially. you know I mean if but they're probably part of the problem as well at some yeah. stage they probably knew some stuff that mm-hmm. was going on Yes, because they weren't directly associated with yeah. it so you know they wanted the, their guys to they win they wanted both ways especially in my days, there was state drug taking in, I mean, the, it was beyond dispute, I think, in East Germany in particular, mm. East Germany and Russia. Mm. And I don't know how they managed to find it out, but the, these German doctors apparently kept meticulous records of everything that they were injecting their athletes with. Mm. And it seems to be beyond dispute. The records are found, and, and these Germans haven't argued against it. Um, and they were just pumping the athletes full of everything under the sun, and apparently yeah. lots of them were, several of them were, did die. Mm. But we didn't hear you know, that it. many names. I think it's like a lot of sports, it's the very best can win because they're the very, very best. It's mm-hmm. the second tier often, yeah. the people who aren't the household names, they're the ones who want to win, and they're sometimes, I think, the worst. But the t- terrible thing about these Germans was they were forced to, into it. They, they just wouldn't have got picked for the national team mm-hmm. unless they did it as they were told by the yeah. doctors. And they were probably, um, you know, deluded themselves or they probably didn't realise what they were being injected with in, mm-hmm. in the athlete's defence. Mm-hmm. But they were basically told, as far as I know, that unless they, they did, took what they were told to take by the doctors, they would yeah. be off the team. That's an awful position to be in, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. And you think about the way those states were governed, you know, the yeah. Chinese as well. well you know, yes. Um, yes. They, they might not have had a, quite as much say in what happened to yeah. them. Well, it could be, yes. <laughs> you know, if you know what I mean, you know, yeah. it's not like here, well, perhaps. Yeah. They yeah. might have been forced into it. Yeah. You know, or in, in some way, if you know what I mean, coerced into it. Yeah. There was a brief period, about three or four years, when the Chinese just obliterated the, the women's distance records yeah. and they are still the official distance records mm-hmm. and in fact what I think the women's 800 metre record is still cracked at over 153 from Czechoslovakia yeah. uh, still the world record holder Casta Semenya hasn't yes. got yeah. that close yeah. to it yeah. and people think she's just yeah. superhuman yeah. at the very yeah. least but yeah. she hasn't approached the records of these, some of these Eastern European countries back in the 80s. Oh, okay. yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think the women's 400 metre record is 47 odd seconds from Rita Koch from mm. East Germany. Mm-hmm. Somehow or other, she didn't officially get banned for taking drugs. Yeah. Um, so some of the, mainly the women's records, it's easier, I think, to improve the females, you know. Mm. 
could give them more drugs and they would improve their performances more. But the official yeah. world records for mm. some of the women's events mm. <laughs> are still, still from the 80s. From the 80s, which, yeah. And when you think of athletics in general, which is improving, and think of things like swimming where it improves every year, yeah. then that says a lot, really. It does say a lot. That speaks mm. volumes. Mm. Yeah. And, of course, the, the women's 100-metre record, Florence Griffiths Joyner, yeah. I mean, she has still got the world record, but she isn't with us now. No, she, she died, died in her 30s. Yeah. And people think that was only due to one thing. Mm. Yeah. I, I think she got found out, didn't she, before? Well, I think when they... I don't know. I think when they did an autopsy, they found yeah. everything under the sun inside yeah. her body. But, but I... Some are other, she is still the world record yeah. holder, I think. Flojo, is it Flojo? Flojo, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm surprised um, they don't understand when, they, when they've got clear evidence that somebody's... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's depressing, really, that there's so many parties involved in the yeah. whole yeah. Um, phenomenon, really. You know, you've got sponsors, you mentioned earlier on, you've got national authorities... You even and your government governments, bodies, yeah. well, government bodies of the sport as well as governments. Mm. Yeah, I mean the Russians before, yeah, the Russian government have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, but even the drug authorities themselves as well. You know, there've been some controversies yeah. with them. You know? Yeah. So, the whole thing is fraught, really. It's it's I don't know, it's terrible, really. Yeah. I mean, athletics in Britain has got, for the sake of argument, has got two, or athletics around the world has got two halves to it. One is like the parkrun phenomenon yeah. and the fun run phenomenon. I mean, athletics is more and more popular than e literally ever before yeah. at one level, but the international level, it's another story. Uh, well, it's, you know, international athletics is still a high standard, but imagine what would happen now if Usain Bolt was found guilty. I mean, I think yeah. athletics yeah. around the world has suffered spectator-wise, because of cynicism, people thinking top performances might be drug-induced, and therefore I think they aren't supporting athletics, sadly, as much as they were at the top international level for spectating. But if, um, if Usain Bolt or Mo Farah was found guilty of drug-taking, that might almost destroy the sport. You know, I think the, yeah. the summer spectaculars yeah, at uh, yeah. the Olympic Park would probably get 5,000 spectators instead of 50, you know. Yeah. Um, so, and the authorities arguably are aware of that, you know, so you hear these stories about, you know, who would actually want to ban Usain Bolt, but I think he's genuinely clean, he's such a natural talent. But imagine if the authorities were, to me it's hypothetical, if they were told that they'd got some evidence of you know, some drug taking, wow. and, um, you know... There would be some serious repercussions off the back of that, say, if Mo was to be found. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah. it would just, it would be awful. And I defend him. I think he's, I think he's mm -hmm. you know, clean. I hope so. But I think everybody will put a boundaries in everything they do in life, and I think that's yeah. fair, you know, you, you mm. don't take drugs, but, you, you know, you want to improve yourself, you know. Mm. I've had a few hypothetical conversations or philosophical conversations about these things. But, um, I mean, Mo Farah went across to America to train with Alberto Salazar, yeah. and he's got such a fantastic scientific setup mm. uh, and, and, and such a great athlete that no, he's ba almost bound to improve. But then, you know, you, you're always pushing the boundaries, you know. Some people even say, you start arguing about should people be allowed to go and do altitude training? Yeah. People are now sleeping in oxygen tents. Yeah, well, yes, I mean, my father was, wasn't he? Yeah, the, yeah well, it's, it's, it's a, I think there's probably quite a few what you would call ordinary athletes, you know. Yeah. 
doing things like that. Yeah. And people yeah. go to altitude training. I mean, clubs even have you know um, training camps just because it's a trendy thing to do. But mm. should you do that? You know, is mm. that immoral or unethical yeah. mm. to go to somewhere whereby just running naturally your body will improve? Mm. You can get into these philosophical debates. Yeah. Well, you can, and we were chatting, weren't we? <laughs> we can't the way up, we as, were saying. As it happens, I, I'm going to Kenya, to the Kenyan oh. Hills. Oh, um, yeah, I'd love to in go. January, yeah. not to do altitude training. No. I'm, I'm going to <laughs> volunteer, but I will be at altitude and I will be trying to run when I'm oh, there. Right, so that's um, good. Oh. I was thinking, oh, I might come back really fast and it'll be great, but it'll be interesting to see um, yeah, if yeah, it makes a difference or not. But but the but the the point you were making about um, um, elite athletes getting involved in that kind of prepar- mm-hmm. preparation, and we were talking about um, the marathons, weren't we? And, yeah. And I said to you, <clears throat> if I was going to do another marathon, I'd probably think a bit more about uh, my nutrition, the protein, yeah. carbohydrate drinks, and these sorts of things, which are much more available now in the market. They are. So yeah. people like us, as normal yeah. runners, can actually access this stuff. Yeah. They may be able to improve our performance. But I'm sitting there thinking, do I want to do that, or do I just want to go out and run and see what I'm? Because I'm not doing anything else. Yeah. You know, do I yeah. want to have my uh, performance improved in that way or do I just want to see if I can naturally improve my performance by just tra- training better you know yeah. it's, it's interesting philosophical kind of discussion yeah. that we can yeah. have even at, this, even at this bottom layer of the sport yeah it's just how damaging um, this whole thing can be you know yeah chasing um, times and getting well yeah you can get you can tie yourself in knots can't you yeah. philosophy at all you know when when you're training hard your blood gets pressure on it you know some people have low iron counts um, which mm. parents naturally if you're stressing yourself. Mm. So, you know, should you take iron tablets? When yeah. lots of people in yeah. the general public are taking tablets from boots because they've got little ailments. Yeah. Um, and that nobody would ever say there's anything wrong in that. But should an athlete take iron tablets because it will give them a better oxygen mm. carrying capacity? And what's the difference between taking an iron tablet and um, either training altitude or... Yeah. Um, doing blood doping. Well, mm-hmm. I, I could actually see a difference. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. sometimes it gets blurred, doesn't it? <coughs> it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah, why is one pill okay and the other pill not? That's exactly so. right. For me, what's disappointing is that we're actually having this discussion. I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's... Uh, given that, I mean, I know you've done it at, at, at national and international, but we're, we're just like all new runners and we're, having, yeah. and we're tying ourselves up in knots and we shouldn't be really. We should just be kind yeah. of... Well, I don't think I've ever... Running against people at my when I was at my best, you know, yeah. but admittedly that was a few years ago when I felt I got beaten by cheats. I don't but maybe really if you were doing sprinting so. though, if you were doing yeah. like the hundred or the two hundred or the four hundred or something, you know, might, maybe yeah. that might have been a bit different because yeah. that's where, yeah, and I think it might that. be different now as well to mm. some extent, mm. um, yeah. Have you got a time for 100 metres? Oh, thank you. <laughs> I don't think I've beaten many people over 100 metres. <laughs> but I saw Mo Farrow, did he run in one of the school, one of his kids' parents' oh. school races and he was well beaten. Was he? <laughs> so he actually is fast. I bet all the parents were like, right, but I'm going to beat him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got one target. Yeah. <laughs> the most we can say is that we've run the Great North Run, isn't it, with yeah. Mo Farah in it? So we have run. Yeah, run we have competed Mo against Mo Farah. Yeah, <laughs> that's one of the great things about athletics, isn't yeah. it? And it's great. You know, even though you might not see them, 
you know, they're still there yeah. in the same race. The picture of our daughter there with um, Paul the Radcliffe. Oh, got photographed yeah. of him there. Yeah. After, that was after the North Run. Yeah. Um, so that was oh. my, my daughter there was did the new junior North Run. But yeah, as you say, you know, they, they, these athletes take part, yeah. don't they, in yeah. the actual um, same race? Yeah. Which you can't get in almost any sport. No. Well, this year, as I was finishing the Great North Run, Mo Farah was stood there at the end waiting for his wife because mm. she was finishing about the same time. And I was like, a little bit delirious. Oh my God, there's Mo, there's Mo. I was like, Mo, Mo. I tried to give him a high five and he, he just stared at me like, who, who are you? What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> you crazy person. <laughs> but they do, they come out and they, they meet and greet people and it's yeah. nice to... Uh, just w- one of fringe benefits being an international athlete, the, somebody decided one year to um, look into how many northeast runners had broken four minutes for the mile. Ah, okay, so you're one and of them. They, yeah, I was one of them. Yeah. And so there's about 20 of us just got invited to the VIP tent, the Great North Run, Brilliant. just because that year they decided to make a big sort of news item about northeast you know, sub four minute miners. That yeah. was quite a nice day out to yeah. sort of be in the VIP tent and see some friends I haven't seen for a few years, you know, had uh, broken four minutes. And that, I think that might have been the year, actually, then we got access to Paula Radcliffe for a photograph. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, How do you even break four minute miles? That's <laughs> that makes me wonder. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, folks, well, I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.